this week on part one of Game of Crimes. Bring me up to speed here. Who got shot? I know there's multiple deaths in this event, but who got shot in this particular incident? Okay, this is this is the uh, the Stuckies, and uh, there was a Stuckies there, and it was right next. It's right off the interstate. It's right next to a big high school. That's kind of a regional high school, and the the manager of that, who apparently he was in there by himself, his name was Larry McFarlane, and uh, they came in and robbed him and and shot him. Well, that's not the first killing they've done. So when we get into the story too, you're going to realize. They've shot and killed somebody in Florida, shot and killed somebody in Arkansas, I believe, shot and killed somebody in Oklahoma. Yeah, they shot Larry McFarland 10 times. For how much was it they got? 170. Welcome, 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 amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dudes, and dudettes, all things in between. Welcome back to another fascinating, scintillating, titillating, uh, authenticating, whatever. I'm just trying to get some stuff that rhyme. Game of Crimes. I am the host, Morgan Wright. I'm here literally with my partner who's recovered from surgery in crime. The guy that puts up with all his crap, Steve Murphy, but you can call me Murph. And you know what? You know, if somebody said something and we, we don't do it in the intro, I just we took it for granted. But, you know, we are real cops. We we did this line of work. We we know what it's like. And I think some people thought, hey, just a couple of dudes on the Internet. You know, we put our bios up on the Web page, but it's like, no, we're the real deal. I mean, I'm the real deal. Steve was, you know, he wanted to be a trooper, as we found out in many episodes, as we'll find mm -hmm. out in this episode. Yeah, because I, I know how to change a tire. I want to be a trooper. No, but I mean, we were I was a cop for 38 years. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to be a podcaster, but I'm learning. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Small talk is over. That's what it says on my sheet. So let's get okay, here the we rest go. of this. Let's go. Housekeeping. So, hey, housekeeping. I'm, you know, it's like Ron Burgundy. He'll read anything. I'm Ron Burgundy. Anyway, head on over to that Apple review, five stars and Spotify. You know, give us the five stars, single stars. It really helps us out a lot. Let's everybody know that we are legitimate. We're real cops talking about real things. We've done this kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, just help legitimize us. Go over there, there go. give us the five stars. And also head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for everything. You know, we've got our book list. Believe me, we have a guest coming up. Don't want to tell you too much yet, but he is he is a made member of a major crime family. Oh, yeah. Or was, I should say. He's got six books out we'll talk about. We're going to be doing his recording here in a couple of weeks. So that's why you got to go to the book list. We will put good stuff on there, our merch uh, mailing list. But follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Steve, where you got to be, where you got to be, where do you got to be? You got to be on Patreon because we got some great stuff on there. We just finished, we do our monthly Q&A and we say we answer all questions. We spent an hour 45 going over all sorts of questions for our players out there. Those folks who are on uh, Patreon, man, good stuff. Uh, by the way, we will announce, we are announcing, we'll tell you the date when it starts. We have finished. I'm working on the process of editing 15, <laughs> technically 16 episodes, but the 15th episode's a two-hour. Chris Feistel, Dave Mitchell, the guys, the DEA, real DEA narcos, talking about the real DEA narcos, Cali edition, bringing down the Cali cartel. That is coming up for people at Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne level. This is very special. The most complete story ever told about the takedown of the Cali cartel. You, you've got to hear it. I mean, I heard so many things in there I, I was not aware of. These guys were studs out there doing the Lord's work. 
And we've got good stuff coming up. We just did uh, 911, What's Your Emergency, where we did the John Benet Ramsey case and that most famous 911 call of all. We did some insight and uh, expert analysis. And we've also got coming up, uh, You Can't Make This Shit Up. And trust me, a couple stories we've already got in there. You're going to scratch your head. You're going to go, man, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> some good stuff on there. In fact, one of them we got from, uh, uh, we recorded while we were out in San Diego at the conference. And we're going to play it. I think that oh, is going to yeah. be, it's uh, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> so you got to be on that. You also got to go to paypal.com. So go to paypal.com, use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. Now, quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things. And in this episode, trust me, there are bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. Trust me in this episode as well. We take the story seriously, but we don't ever take ourselves serious. There are times when we get serious, but we're going to have some fun, as you already know. Yes, we are. And the way to have fun is for me to ask you, Murph, guess what time it is? I bet it's time for Small Small Town town Police Slaughter. Dude, I know the anesthesia is still wearing off, but that was fucking slow. (laughs) What's my partner? I'm watching you on screen as we're doing this. I'm trying to get you to catch up. No, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Steve, this should probably be in You Can't Make This Shit Up, but here is a headline, and it comes from the UK Time News. So this is out of the United Kingdom. Okay. Real headline. All right. Woman shot dead by police re- released from Jackson County Jail after posting bond. Wow, how do you do that? Boy, talk about reincarnation. That was quick, huh? Leona Hale, the 25-year-old woman shot and killed a week ago by police, was taken to the Jackson County Jail and released on bail on Friday, court and jail records show. Hale was charged with unlawful possession of a firearm, exhibiting a firearm, and resisting arrest. Well, which led to the shooting. But um, I guess they think, do things differently in the UK. Well, they're headlines, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still working through this. How do you shoot and kill? And, and we're not making fun of shooting and killing somebody. We're making fun of the headline because obviously yes. she's not dead. Right. So, I mean, did somebody get a little overzealous? Did somebody cop and paste, copy and paste? Or did somebody just not know their ass from a hole in the ground? I don't know. I like the Freudian slip you had there, cop and paste. You know, <laughs> get cop and paste. Get that? So, okay. Now, again, headlines. And if you read the headline, it kind of sets the tone for the story, but then there's the twist at the end, and I'm kind of giving it away. Gold Chain Taken. That's the name of the article. Uh A 21-year-old woman in the 1600 block of Oak Drive reported Saturday that her gold chain with the diamond pendant was missing from her home. That sounds, you know, pretty expensive, right? You know, that's the first sentence, right? The woman suspects that her ex-roommate took the chain. Okay, there you go. And also took the woman's husband, who is also missing. (laughs) But the important part was the priority. (laughs) I want my gold chain back. Him, not so much. But yes, the gold chain. Uh, That's the funniest one so far. That's good. Gold chain, muy importando, amigo. Muy importando. El hubby, not so much. (laughs) So, Steve, I got to ask you, what's what's one of the most unusual descriptions of a suspect? that you recall from your day when you were told to go out and look for this person or look for this guy, what was one of the most unusual descriptions you might've gotten? Uh, You know, most of them are so damn sketchy. They put a description out and it could fit like 800 people around the street right at the time. What do you, what do you got? This description may fit about 10,000 people. Okay. Today, 2.56 a.m., officers requested at River Terrace on a report of two, quote, gangly-looking turds walking around <laughs> the addition. 
officers searched the edition but could not find anyone matching the description. They did not look hard enough. Trust me, these guys. That's excellent. I love it. Gangly looking turds. Uh, no, they're all right. Uh, I don't even know what to say about that one. Well, we've talked about shit birds and shit bags, but I've never heard of gangly looking turds. Uh, well, you have now. Only on Game of Crimes. Thus endeth the reading for today, Kyrie Domine Danaeus Requiem. Gangly looking turds. Mm-hmm. I think we should get a t-shirt that says, I'm a gangly looking turd. There you go. I, I tell you what, some of our players would love that. Gangly looking turds. <laughs> oh, anyway, speaking of turds, Murph, no. Uh, well, these next, the our next guest is not a turd. He's actually a former colleague of mine, friend of mine, but the people that he dealt with are definitely shitbirds, shitbags, turds, you name it. Yep. Um, and this is actually, I mean, this is good because I reached out. I, I felt bad because every time I con, he's relatively good health, but every time I contacted him, I seemed to put him in the hospital and his heart <laughs> raced and it did this. So we finally got the episode. So it's a friend of mine, Mark Convoy, radio number 16, formerly with the greatest law enforcement agency in the United States, the Kansas Highway Patrol. His radio we call the- was 16. That's really low. Well, they would just assign, it was just, they rotate the number. So when he retired, somebody else got the number 16. So it's not a seniority thing. You're thinking of like your badge number, your employee number and stuff. But uh, we went by radio numbers. Mine was 150, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which was very close to my IQ, 16, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're saying about Mark? (laughs) No, no. I was asking what your radio number was, Murph. Oh, uh, it was probably uh, 12. 212. No, I I didn't have a radio number. Oh, just had a beat. But anyway, but this this one has actually happened in uh, February of 1985. I was been on the Salina Police Department for two and a half years, had gotten on the patrol, had just graduated from the academy in November of 1984, and I'm out training. And this thing happens in February of 1985. And Mark Comboy, at that time, was a trooper uh, stationed in uh, southwest or at northwest Kansas, I should say. Um, and you know, you had to cover a lot of territory out there, but this, this was something that I think got made into a couple movies. He was on the real stories of the Ohio patrol, but it involved four people got into a shootout, uh, in, uh, Western Kansas. And the guy that really started this all was a guy named Danny Rometta. And we're going to get into this in the story, but let me just put this in perspective. Danny Rometta, Lisa Dunn, Mark Walters, uh, and, uh, James, uh, Hunter, James Hunter, um, when this thing ended, this was a multi-state spree, crime spree, where five people were killed, three wounded. And these guys, what they did is they started in Michigan, worked their way to Florida. So they killed a person in Florida. They killed a person in Arkansas, shot another lady, which we'll talk about five times, but she survived, crawled back to the road, and then killed three more people in Kansas. And Mark was the trooper, him and a couple uh, Colby police officers, they were the ones that had the final confrontation in a farmhouse uh, in a little town called Outwood, Kansas. But we're going to go through this stuff, but we're talking about a trooper getting, I mean, he's getting involved, chase people who have shot and wounded, uh, just recently shot and wounded an under or a deputy sheriff with Thomas County. And now, so now you're talking about confronting uh, people who at least they know if they've tied them at least to three killings in Kansas, plus wounding a deputy, plus God knows what else. I mean, this is just... 
it's a great story because he's a great guy, but he's got a really varied history. You think he's a Kansas farm boy? No, he moved around the world. So I, I really like this episode. Well, that and his humble attitude. I mean, some of the times we were having to pull information out of him because he's, this is not about bragging rights. You know, this was just part of his job, and it was obvious that, and he was recognized for his hero, heroism and doing his job, the bravery involved. But, um, you, you know, it, it, there's nothing about, hey, listen to what I did. You know, you got to hear my story. Mark is one of the most humble police officers I've ever met and just matter of fact about his conversation. And he doesn't try to take credit for anything that he wasn't involved with. Um, it's just re very reassuring because, you know, there's so many people out there that want to say, oh, look what I did. Look, look what I did here. Look what I did there. Uh, that's not what law enforcement is supposed to be about. I felt like a dentist extracting information out yeah. of him, but we got it out of him. And <laughs> yes, the only way did. you're going to hear it is if I ask you, Murph, are you ready? to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. Absolutely. And everybody, this one, it's a little bit harrowing. So as we always say, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. We want to hear Mark's story. Well, if Murph thought he was outnumbered before, he's definitely outnumbered now by two of the finest members of the greatest police agency ever to be constituted in the United States. The proud, the mini, the mighty Kansas Highway Patrol. Right, Murph? I tell you what, everybody except Morgan, I take my hat off to you. <laughs> well, hey, we have got uh, a former colleague of mine. Uh, he came on the patrol before me, but uh, we were both troopers at the same time. And I remember the day when this stuff was happening. And so First of all, let's welcome to the podcast, former state trooper from the great state of Kansas, radio number 16, Mark Comboy. Mark, welcome, buddy. Hey, thank you. Glad to have you here, Mark, and a great pleasure to meet you, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. Well, this is going to be interesting because, believe it or not, you know, a lot of people just think of Kansas as flyover country and stuff, but there have been significant things that happen. And one of the things that brings it through there, we've got a couple, <laughs> you call them interstates. I think we used to call them sewer lines too, but you've got 135 that goes north to south and then 35, which is the turnpike that goes up that way. And then you've got I-70, which goes across and brings a lot of stuff in there. And Mark, let's that, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this thing that happened back uh, in 1985 with Danny Rometta, Lisa Dunn, uh, James Hunter, and Mark Walter. But before we get to that, because he was Rometta... Um, there was a spree killing, six people killed, three people injured, and you and uh, the guys from Colby PD got into the final gun battle. But before we get there, we need to learn a little bit about you. So you and I, when we were talking before, um, you kind of you kind of made the full circle getting back to people think, oh, you're just a farm boy from Kansas. But, dude, you were all over the place. Yeah, I was. My dad uh, worked for the federal government. Uh, he, I was actually born at uh, Fort Campbell. He was, a, uh, he was 101st Airborne. Uh, but he was from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and after he got out of the army, he went back there and started working for the for the federal government. And uh, there, uh, his his brother um, was a Minneapolis police officer, and he retired as a detective sergeant with the with the PD there in Minneapolis. And then we moved all over the place. Like every three years, we went from from there to Columbus, Ohio, which is that's where I was when Kennedy got shot. Um, went from there to Miami, uh, Bangkok, uh, Atlanta, uh, Kansas City, and then Silver Spring, Maryland. Wow. Dang, man. 
And and what what part of the government was your dad in? He was all over, but mostly he was a, uh, a civilian personnel officer, primarily for the Air Force. Uh, when he retired the first time, he was um, he worked for the he was like deputy inspector general for health and human services. He did like uh, welfare fraud investigations on the federal level. Wow. And then, but the other thing you were telling me too, he ended up as chief of police in a little town up here in Maryland. A couple of them. Uh, yeah. After he retired from there, he went to, uh, he was chief in Forest Heights and District Heights. And I don't know which one first, but. Man, What's so. Close it, to? I haven't heard of that in Maryland. I think it's up by Silver Springs, right? Or somewhere near that area? Uh, District Heights is literally right on the border of the Air Force Base. Andrews? Yeah. Okay. And so they're in that, they're both in PG County, Prince George's County. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Joint Base Andrews, yeah. Well, yeah, it wasn't called that back then, but yeah. No, it was, yeah, definitely something yeah. different. But man, like I said, but so you kind of had, I mean, your dad was, but but it was your uncle, though, that was Minneapolis PD. But when did you? Correct. So, but where did you go to? So you were all over the place. Did you, did you tell me you actually went to high school for a while? Was that, were you doing high school in Bangkok? I went to seventh and eighth grade in Bangkok. Okay. What yeah. was that like? That uh, was pretty cool. Uh, they had a real nice private school over there called International School of Bangkok. It was English speaking. Uh, it was it was pretty fancy, pretty nice. Well, my dad was Army. We lived in Iran for three years. So we went to the Internet. Same thing. They kind of had them yeah. all set up the same, the International School in Tehran. And, right. Um, very nice. Actually, years later, one of the guys that worked on the PD with me in Garden City was in third grade when I was in second grade. His dad flew for TWA, and we didn't realize it till like 30 years later. You know, we're all talking. You were there? I, what'd your dad do? So we found the old picture, but that was fun. But where'd you go? So uh, from there, you went, you came back to the United States. Where'd you go? Atlanta. Atlanta? Yeah. And where'd you finally end up graduating high school from? Well, I went to 9th, 10th, and 11th in Atlanta, and I and then we moved to Kansas City at Overland Park. So I went to just my senior year to Shawnee Mission South. Man, that's got to be tough. I know what it's like being a military brat, but every three years, so it's tough to make friends. And But high school, man, that was so close. You go to high school with three years of your people, and then the fourth year, total strangers. Yeah. Well, yeah, my senior year was pretty much a waste anyway. Why is that? <laughs> well, well um, Georgia had a requirement that you had a year of PE that Kansas didn't have. So when I, or no, Kansas had the requirement that Georgia didn't have. So when I got to Kansas, I had to take a year of freshman PE as a senior, and I only had to take three classes. So, I mean, that was one of them. So, I mean, it was kind of a – I went to PE and two other classes, and I was done by 11 o'clock and went to work. Wow. Wow. That wasn't bad. You know, that is tough on, on kids. My uh, daughters, uh, my oldest daughter went to four different high schools in, in four years, and the younger one went in three different high schools in four years. Uh, you know, it's it's tough on them. Even when they went back to a place where they knew people, it, the friends had changed, the cliques had changed. It's it's a tough life for kids. Yeah, I hardly remember anybody from my senior year. I mean, I, I really, I was more interested in working than school, so. Yeah. So how did you get into this thing of ours, this thing of ours we call law enforcement? I mean, you had a short, or not a short, but you had a detour into the military. How did that happen? Uh. Well, prior to that, you know, I don't know, my interest in law enforcement, I, I mean, it was always kind of, I guess my dad, because, you know, in all of our moving around, he was, uh, 
he was a reserve in three different places. Uh, one of them was Whitehall PD in it's like a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. And then when we were in Miami, he was a reserve for the Florida Highway Patrol. And then uh, when we were in Overland Park, he was a reserve for Overland Park. And then when we were in Atlanta, um, I was working at a gas station there. And then actually the building's still there. I looked it up on uh, Google Street Maps the other day, but it was a spur station. Um, and that was kind of local to the area, I guess, down there. I don't know, it was kind of a southern thing, but um, anyway, I got robbed and kidnapped when I was 16. Whoa, whoa, oh, okay. Dang. You sandbagged <laughs> me on that when I said yeah, what happened in high school. You said not much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, well that, was in a, that was in Overland Park. All right, let's talk about that. Holy cow, uh, what happened? I was in a, I, well, I was 16. I, I, um, the, the guy that owned this spur station was a, had a name like Murphy. It was, his name was Strickland. And everybody called him Strick. And uh, anyway, I loved the old guy. And I had hung around there for a couple years, and I'd worked some. I'd, as much as anything, I'd worked for free, but, you know, just pumping gas just for something to do. And anyway, so I went to work for this guy, and by then I had bought a car. And uh, Murphy's probably familiar with the place. It was on uh, Scott Boulevard. There was a Ford dealer. I don't know when you were there. There was a Ford dealership there called Friendly Ford. Yep, I remember that. It's out. Okay, well, it was right next to it. And that's where I got okay. my first car. And anyway, so I was working in there to pay my dad back for the car. And uh, anyway, three guys come in, two white guys and a black guy. And they stuck a gun in my belly and made me get in the car with them. And they Why? drove me. Um, they just robbed me. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know why they kidnapped me. It's crazy. So, but they, but that's what I'm saying. I didn't want to gloss over too much, but they came in to rob you first. Did they, they get money and everything and then they take you out of the store with them? Yeah. Yeah. It made me get in the car with them. It made no sense, but you know, this was, I mean, we didn't even have a cash register. It was a little bitty old station, you know, I mean, it's one of those kind of stations that didn't have bays. All we had was gas, uh, two restrooms. You go inside the building. There was nothing in there except the, you know, a cigarette machine, a candy machine, a pop machine. And we didn't even have a cash register. We had a, we carried the, the cash in our shirt pocket and the change in our pants pocket. And, you know, all I had was like 60 bucks. I mean, back then it was 29 cents a gallon. You know, didn't have that much money. We had a little uh, floor safe back there, you know, that I had no access to that if you got too much money, you stuff the bills down in the little crack. And, and so anyway, you know, that yeah, they came in and, you know, they're looking around and asking me questions, and finally the guy pulls out a gun, and so I give him the money, no big deal, and then they tell me to get in the car with them. Okay, <laughs> which made no sense. I mean, you know, robbing 60 bucks is one thing. I mean, kidnapping is a whole different level of how many years you're going to go to prison. And uh, anyways, hey, they drove... What did you think at that time when they, I mean, like you say, robbery is one thing, but the minute they stuck the gun in you and they said, hey, go with me, what was, what, what were you thinking at that point? You know, I don't know. I, the funny thing was, and, and uh, they were actually really nice to me. Uh, well, it's the a whole southern time. thing. Yeah. They, they kept telling me, don't worry, kid, you're going to be all right. Just do what we say. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I obviously was scared. I was 16 years old, but and hadn't had a whole lot of experience having guns pointed at me, but, um, 
I don't know. You know, they, they kind of reassured me all the way. So they, we got into Atlanta somewhere in a residential area, and they dumped me off. And so I'm just kind of wandering around in this residential area, and I see a cab, so I flag him down and just, you know, tell him to call the police. So he calls the police. Of course, it's a different jurisdiction, so Atlanta police has got to take me to. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm thinking it was DeKalb County is who they took me to. And so anyway, the uh, Cab County took me back to the station and I was there, I actually got there before the owner got back and the police were just hammering me, you know, accusing me of being part of it. And uh, so anyway, the old man came back, Strickland came back and when he saw what was going on. He told him just get the hell out. That kid didn't steal nothing from me. You know, it was 60 bucks. It was good for him. And yeah, he threw him out. He says, I don't care if you catch him or not. Just get out of here. So that's pretty much the last I ever heard of it. Went home that day and the next day I went back to work. And my mother wasn't happy that I went back, but I went back the next day. So I take it they never caught the guys. No, no, I never heard from it again. Looking back on it now, now that you've got the experience of being a cop and in law enforcement, what did the, what did you think they were? I mean, were these guys uh, cons on the run? Were they fugitives? Were they just guys? I mean, it, to your point, it makes no sense. You already got the money. Why take you now into another place and hold you hostage for what? To to round out four people to put in the car? I mean, it just like you said, makes no sense. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I don't know what they were thinking. They 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 seem nervous the whole time. And I don't know, it, you know, it may have been a first time for them, but I mean, what they did made no sense. How'd that affect you when you thought about becoming a cop? I mean, did that play any role uh, later in terms of you wanting to get into law enforcement? I've never really thought about that much. Um, I'm sure it had an effect on me. I'm sure it did. You know, it's, it's uh, just the whole connection to gas stations and, and uh, you know, the story we're getting ready to talk about is kind of interesting. I was say, this sounds eerily familiar mm -hmm. already. Man. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that later um, when we start getting into the story, um, if that pulled back anything for you. But, um, but yeah, we were kind of going that way. I was talking to you about the Army when you threw this bomb on us. Oh, yeah, by the way, I was kidnapped <laughs> and robbed, but no big deal, <laughs> you know. Well, I so, thought uh, I was 15. I talked. I asked my dad about it, and he said I was 16, so I was driving. So What a story. It, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was expecting we we're going to talk about going into the army, and then we get thrown this curveball. Way to go! Way it's to go, weird K16. that that gas, that old crummy gas station, still there too. I saw it on uh, that Google Street View. It's a Sitco now, but it's just a crappy old building, and it's still there. Serves it serves the need for the you know for the neighborhood, man. The, those folks. Need... There's a Wendy's next to it that wasn't there back then. We didn't have Wendy's, but. I guarantee you what else isn't there anymore? 29 cents a gallon gas. That's right. <laughs> True. <laughs> so uh, now, is there any other crimes that you were a victim of that you want to disclose to us before we get into your <laughs> army time? <laughs> no, I think that was it. I think that was it. Uh, there may be another well, I one did here. Get, we'll I did get mugged pretty bad once time down there, but down in Decatur. Got beat up pretty <laughs> bad. Okay. <laughs> but that <laughs> was a whole different story. No, me and me and there was this kid that uh, kid that I was friends with. His name was Bobby, and he had he had kind of long hair, and and uh, we're just walking back home from a convenience store, and uh, this '57 Chevy pulls up, and three guys jump out and just beat the heck out of me, and he was fast enough to get away, so I took a pretty good beat. I mean, was it? 
you said they were mugging you? They steal something? I, just no, hop? they didn't steal anything. I think they were after him because of his long hair. They were saying stuff like that, and I don't remember specifically, but I think it, I think he was the target just being a long hair. And you know what? That's like the old joke. You know, the guys that go out camping and the bear attacks the campsite, and the one guy's putting on his shoes, and he goes, "What are you doing? You can't outrun the bear." He says, "Don't have to outrun the bear. Just <laughs> yeah. have to outrun you." Yeah. Well, he <laughs> outran me, and they got me. Now you didn't have long hair, though, did you? No, I didn't. Uh, just because you're his friend, man. So was it a bad beating, or was it one you got over? Uh, oh, I got over it, but yeah, yeah, they they thought me pretty good. Okay, Mark. Before we get into the army story, are there any other <laughs> no. crimes? What other surprises you got? <laughs> well, there was this one time, you know, I was held up in a bank, you know. Well, you know, I did step on the moon, but uh, that was just a short stay. <laughs> but I got mugged on the moon too. Yes, <laughs> there I was minding my own business. Three guys come by. Uh, God, okay. All right, Mark. Well, now we've got a couple of stories that may form the basis of your law enforcement career. But before you got to law enforcement, I'm going to throw this out there and see if you throw us another curveball. How did you get into the Army? Uh, well, when I, was in, when I was in Kansas City, when I was in Overland Park, I had, um, I, after I graduated, I, I was installing telephones, business telephones. And Kansas City, Kansas had a reserve program. And I looked into that because I wanted to be a reserve. But of course, I wasn't—you know—I wasn't 21 yet, and uh, and it, I was gonna do it. But when I crunched the numbers, I couldn't afford to because I was still living at home, and they paid nothing. So and you had to live in Kansas City, Kansas. So I couldn't afford to move to Kansas City, Kansas. So then when my my dad got a promotion to go to D.C., and I'm back there, and I took a you know a little government job, but. Um, I looked into the Maryland State Police, and they had a reserve program. So I went through their whole process, uh, went through the first interview, went through the background, went through, uh, you know, all that, all that stuff, the written test, all that stuff. And for whatever reason, they had a second interview. So I go into this second interview, and there's this crusty old sergeant in there, and I, I don't even remember. He was like, he had extra. He had a he had an extra rocker or two. He's six or seven, seven like. <clears throat> and he says, he looks at everything and he goes, "Well, son," he says, "it all looks good, but we kind of like to get our, our our cadets right at eighteen, so we've got them for the full three years." And oh crap! And I took that to be, I didn't get the job, and I was like twenty, nineteen and a half, almost twenty. And I literally went out, uh, dejected, thinking I didn't get the job, and went out and joined the Army. Said, oh, heck with this, I'll go be an MP. I was going to say, you're an old man at 20, you can't get on the reserves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's and well, I'm literally four weeks into basic training, and they call me and say, come to work. So, but that was an easy lay down for the recruiter. You know, they always have, they have, they have troubles today trying to find people, but you walked in and said, I'm tired of the Maryland State Police. Who wants to hire me? And then the army guy hops up, says he's got a slot for you. So, where'd you go? Where'd you go through? Ba when and where did you go through basic training? I uh, went to basic at Fort Dix, and then I went to MP school at Fort McClellan, Alabama. And they had just moved it. I was like in the fourth class at Fort McClellan. They had just moved it from Fort Gordon, Georgia. What year was that? Seventy-five. Wow! So I was a uh, sophomore in high school. Young whippersnapper. And you were just starting your law enforcement career in Krusty Krab, West Virginia, weren't you? That's it, buddy. 
Bluefield. It's actually Bluefield, Mark, not Krusty Krab. But I mean, it's it sounds like it's Krusty Krab, considering this whole <laughs> He's farm. Just but jealous. This, uh, He's just jealous. jealous. Mark. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But what, look, I'll tell you what, too. I went through. I joined the reserves, uh, basic training to go into ROTC, but that was 1979. But even then, I'm sure, like your time, you had drill sergeants that were Vietnam vets, people with combat infantry badges, people that had seen combat and stuff, and. Uh, I'm sure for you, basic training wasn't a, a cakewalk. Oh no! Well, literally, I mean, when I went in, technically, I'm I'm a uh, Vietnam era right vet because um, it actually ended the month that I went in. So uh, yeah, everybody was. It was right after Vietnam. I mean, it was when they were still spitting on guys and telling you not to wear your uniform off post and you know that kind of stuff. What a shame! All those all those people, shame on them. Yeah. Did you go through any of that, Mark, when you were in uniform? Uh, a little. Uh, yeah, yeah, we went through some. And, you know, even when I got to Fort Riley, and it wasn't a problem in Korea, but uh, when I got to Fort Riley, we kind of knew, you know, it was okay to wear your uniform down into Junction City, uh, but you didn't go over to Manhattan to the college town that way. You know, that was, yeah. you know, you just knew better. I mean. Obviously, we're crossing paths here, but years before I was born at Fort Riley, my dad was First uh, Infantry Division. Uh, he was in Viet. He was in World War II in Vietnam. But when I was born at Fort Riley, we moved around, ended up back at Fort Riley um, there. Um, you know, years later when I went to school in Chapman. So I know all the areas you're talking about. When I was a Salina cop, we used to get all the uh, GIs, the Eagles landed. You know, just crapped in their wallet, and they're over here. Whether it's Junction City or Salina, getting drunk, getting in trouble, and most of them stayed in Junction City because Salina was just a little bit too far to drive. But, man, yeah. but I, I yeah. don't remember, at least when I was on, when I started Salina 82, I don't remember any of that happening with guys in uniform. I think it had just passed enough, you know, enough time had passed. But, man, um, what was it like, though, coming back? I mean, you were only in Overland Park for a while. Now you're, you're in the Army. Now you're back in Kansas. What's that like? Uh, well, it was interesting. I mean, you know, with having lived in the places that I had, Atlanta and Miami and D.C. and Bangkok, and, you know, I come on the patrol and, oh, well, I, I'm sorry, we hadn't gotten that far yet. You're, you're talking about coming back Fort, to Fort, Fort Riley, Riley? Yeah. Just being yeah. there? Um, like you said, you've, you've been in Atlanta, you've been in Bangkok, you've been in Miami. Yeah. I will tell you, Junction City is not the cultural hub of the Midwest. Manhattan, <laughs> Kansas, they have, the, it's called the Little Apple, right? And they have a big bar scene over there they call Aggieville. So, Maybe a, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, a yeah, collection yeah. of stuff, but yeah, you're right. Not the most, uh, you're not going to find all the stuff you did in those other places. Yeah, but I really didn't have a problem with it because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't particularly like Maryland that much. I mean, just the traffic and stuff. Well, brother, it has not changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, all my family's most back there now and, uh. In Virginia and Maryland. So oh, just you try to cross on the inner loop into Maryland out of Virginia. Holy cow, about past Tyson's. It's always backed up there. And this morning, an accident by 66 and Sudley Road, and they were telling people you better plan on hours to get to work. Hey, so let me ask you guys. You guys are troopers and worked a lot of accidents. When I was trained to work an accident, you, you rendered first aid, and then your second responsibility was to get traffic moving again. Was that the same for you guys? Absolutely. Yeah. But nowadays, it's like block down the world, brother. We got an accident here, and, and we're going to take as long as it takes. You know, 
something it depends upon the severity of the accident i mean you do have to pr protect the scene you know while you're investigating it but you know like you said like mark said first thing is always take care of the you know you got to take care of anybody who's injured render first aid first but normally we would block off just enough of the road to get people around or reroute people but um where i was at we didn't have the inner loop and the outer loop and mm -hmm. 66 and the what they call the mixing bowl down by Springfield. So I think it's a different world working stuff out here. Uh, apparently. apparently. <laughs> it seems like nowhere. You well, part of that, part of it's also, I, I don't know, I, I, was the fire department's trained differently. Them guys show up and they block the whole road. We call them the evidence eradication team. They come up there with their inch and a half hose <laughs> and start spraying off the road. It's like, there goes all my damn evidence. Leave it alone. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I, we had conflicts with them, but at the same time, that's how they're trained. So, But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast, you're in Fort Riley. So um, you'd gone through basic, gone through what they call AIT, right? Could become an MP. So was, yes. was Fort Riley your first yes. uh, post? No, no, no. I went to Korea for oh, a year. Okay, that's right. So uh, where were we at? Seoul? No, I was in Pusan, which was great. I mean, it was like the the Miami beach of, of Korea. It's down at the down at the southern end where the beaches are and the port. That was one of our big responsibilities was uh, that's the port where they brought in like all the merchant ships that brought in all the, the military supplies. So we had to guard a lot of that. Must have been tough duty, man. You know, it was great. It was great. <laughs> I didn't want to leave. Was it fun? And they wouldn't let MPs stay. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. They wouldn't let us stay. They wouldn't let MPs stay. Why? I think we're worried about the black market and that stuff kind of stuff. Afraid that you after know, too long being exposed to that, some people might be tempted? Yeah, yeah. So when you were over there in Korea, uh, Pusan, what was what most of your, I mean, like you say, you were guarding stuff, but did you guys get involved in anything as, you know, MPs? Were there any big crimes or any big events that happened that you guys responded to? No, not really. Um, I happened to be there. Well, I had nothing to do with it. It was nowhere close. It was up. I don't know if you remember, there was an incident there where uh, uh, up on the up at Panmunjom, where uh, two military officers were killed, or two of our officers were killed by an axe oh, by the Koreans. No, didn't hear that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it was up. It was up on the border. Uh, it was. It was at actually at Panmunjom, um, some in, in in the neutral area. Some the. Koreans had come over, the North Koreans had come over and started chopping down some tree. Two MP officers went over and, and said, hey, what the heck are you doing? It was a big incident at the time, but of course it's been forgotten now. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, the Koreans went after the MP officers with, with the axe and killed them. And uh, in full view of, a, of an MP in a tower, with an M16 and a 45, but no ammo because they didn't want to start a war. Wow. And he's sitting there with one of those old crank field phones, and that's all he had. Anyway, it was a big deal at the time. They they put put us all on board, you know, on call or uh, called us all out on standby and, you know, thought we were going to go to war. And, but, you know, it settled down after a day or two. So w were these North Koreans? But that I didn't have any part of that. Were these North Koreans yeah. that did it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised. And how was it? How was how was it resolved, or did it just die and go away? It just, I, as far as I know, just kind of died and went away. Of course, you know, news wasn't what it is now. Yeah. 
what it is now, but that would have been a huge international incident. Twenty four seven reporting. They would have had Anderson Cooper on the ground, breathlessly reporting from the DMZ. <laughs> Are we going to have? It a was war? a big deal at the time, but yeah, not that. Yeah, not the same. Well, but they've also locked down the DMZ too a lot more since that too, because uh, North Korea and Kim Jong Il and you know Kim Jong Un. Uh, they are deathly afraid of people escaping the country. I remember that one video of the one guy soldier who did make it. He was shot a couple, three times, but he used a vehicle to get out. But it, it's it's nearly impossible to get through that area of the DMZ right now because they have just so fortified that. And so you, you did a year there, then uh, you come back to Fort Riley. Uh, I guess the same thing, right? Being an MP in Fort Riley, what did your duties consist of there? Uh yeah, that was actually where I got interested in traffic uh, and, and kind of uh, in a backwards way. They had too many MPs at, at Fort Riley. I don't know why. They had three MP companies. So they had, you did one month on the road, one month in training, and one, one month on company detail. So you only got to do MP work like one third of the time. And this opening came up in traffic, which was a specialty unit. And, you know, I jumped on that and that was full time. So that gave me full time. And that's actually, like I said, that's where I got interested in traffic because, you know, as a regular MP, I was just like a beat cop in a city. You know, I had a little patrol area that I was assigned and I couldn't leave unless I got told I could. And, you know, where traffic, I had the run of the post. I could go wherever I wanted to go. And, I, you know, I really enjoyed that. I remember uh, I worked on post between my senior year in uh, high school, my freshman year in college, I worked up at the uh, NCO club up there on, um, uh, on, on the, the hill, hill yeah. yeah, Custer Hill. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing the MP stop people on a regular basis. They had like, you know, UC cars, unmarked cars, I should say, you know, little bubble up there. But what did you get? Do, what, what, what were you guys driving back in the day? Were you guys driving just actually marked uh, Jeeps or you have uh, UC vehicles or unmarked vehicles? We had Jeeps in Korea, but no, when I got to Fort Riley, I thought, well, I thought we were really uptown. We had Plymouth Volaris. <laughs> I thought that was cool. That was a great car compared to the Jeeps. All I can think of is Ricardo Monteblon singing Volari, you know, <laughs> Plymouth Volari. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we thought that was pretty uptown. One lesson I did learn um, early on in my career, and I learned it actually from an MP, who actually had to deal with both enlisted, you know, and uh, officers. But he was, he, I think he stopped a, a captain one day um, and the captain started trying to read him the right act. You can't stop me. I'm leaving and stuff. And he ended up becoming a trooper with us, was in my class. He said, sir, do not confuse your rank with my authority. <laughs> I think the guy got his uh, ass pulled into the uh, battalion commander's office in a, a full scale, you know, dressing down occurred in that, but I'm not sure they oh, did anything. That's one of those career deciding statements. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I meant the captain got pulled in because, you know, oh. uh, Mark, Mark during that time, um, well, this is like early 80s, but there were so many DUIs going on and Article 15's being handed out. The post commander, which my mom actually worked for the garrison commanders, the colonels who worked for him, they got so tired of that stuff. They started hauling. If you if you had a uh, if you had a soldier arrested for DUI, you came in with your top sergeant. You came in with the company commander. You came in with the XO. You know, you came in. Just he had the whole chain of command there, and he would start ass chewing at the top and workers. He wouldn't even talk to the soldier. It's like I don't care about you. I'm just using you to get everybody else in here. And they pretty much a lot of these guys started realizing these are career limiting moves. We got to get a handle on this because. You know how it is. They, they get paid, and the people going to Junction City, and there would be fights. There would be all sorts of problems. 
just good stuff, right? When you're an MP. <laughs> so no, I've, that's, I've, yeah, that, that would have been, I kind of left that out, but that would have been kind of our most fun time in, uh, when I was in Korea, cause they'd bring in, uh, like the USS Midway and, you know, they'd let 4,000 of them guys loose at one time, 4,000 of the 5,000 loose at one time, and they'd all be down in the bar areas. And that, that got a little, little crazy. So, hey, so just uh, expand on that a little bit too. So your army, your military MP, but you've got the midway coming in, you've got sailors, um, you know, if you've got naval personnel, but even though you're an MP, when they are in uniform, does your authority under what you call the Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ, does it extend over the other branches as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, who were your biggest? They, they, they didn't have to be in uniform. Well, no. that's what I'm saying. They didn't. But as long as they were a member yeah. of the service, didn't matter what, right? Ab yes, absolutely. Who were bigger problems, Navy guys or Marines or Army or Air Force? Uh, well, when they got drunk, it was Marines. Oh, I'm shocked at that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, you didn't normally have that much problems with them. But, you know, they get drunk enough and get to hooting and hollering and yeah. Any big riots you had to quell? Anything, uh, big disturbances you had to squash? We had a lot of bar fights, a lot of bar fights. There was a, you know, most of the places down there were off limits, and there was one area that was on limits. So it was like they all were in the same place, and uh, it, it got pretty rowdy. But, you know, it was only, oh, you know, four or five days a month maybe that, that a ship would be in. But that's funny, though, you said the Midway, because that, that goes back to World War II, you know? That's, those yeah, are... well, it's out of commission yeah. now, but yeah, back in the day. And it would come in with its flagships, and and that's pretty much mostly what happened was we had a couple of vans, and, you know, they, they'd, we'd, we'd take the drunks and we'd throw them out in one van, and they'd take them back to the ship, and... And it didn't, it didn't actually charge them. Just, you just got them the hell out. Because if you did that, you'd be... Got them back to the ship. You know what it's like in law enforcement, man? You arrest one drunk, you're doing all that paperwork, they beat you out of the jail before you're even done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And it was even worse at Fort Riley. When they got back, didn't they have to stand the captain's mast? When they went back to the ship, yeah, they were restricted to, to the ship for the rest of this, their stay. Yeah. That's probably more punishment than, you know, going to jail, spending the night. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Was. Yeah. You can get a non-judicial punishment, take, get a fine or whatever, busted bank or rank, but you, you mean I can't go to the bar? That's yeah, even worse, exactly. man. Well, you know, they've been on the ship for a couple of months and, you know, haven't had a drink for a couple of months and haven't seen a woman in a couple of months and they try to do it all in an hour and a half. Well, we are talking about the Navy. I'm not sure that's <laughs> a deciding factor. <laughs> oh, don't, <laughs> if you Navy people out there, don't give me hate mail. Um, no, send it to him. Send it to him. Let's see. What send, it to, <laughs> send it to Steve Murphy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, but 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 the but the other the other thing too. So when you started running traffic there at Fort Riley, um, the post is actually pretty decent size. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, but you've got the tank range out there. You've got Camp Funston and Forsyth, I think. You know, and all these different areas. So how how far out were you allowed to go? Just on the base itself, or I mean, I know there's some other areas out there that were attached to the base, weren't there? Oh, it's pretty much just the base. Technically, I seventy coming through there is on the base on base property. Yeah, but they didn't let us. They wouldn't let us out there to play. They, that was that's they, troopers. They didn't want us that's out where there. troopers go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, so uh, but while you were down there, um, any big uh, incidents happened while you were in Fort Riley? No, nothing really I can think of. 
Hey, did they ever detail you guys to go into Junction City to work with the police or over to Salina at that time to work with the police because of all of the troubles that were happening outside the base? Or did you did you guys as MPs pretty much stay on the base? Yeah, we pretty much stayed on it at that time. Okay. So, uh, but this, this continues on for a while. So what point do you, how long are you in the Army before uh, you punch out of that and start looking for another job? Uh, three years. And that was part of it. My dad had... And I don't remember the politics of the time, but um, Bahrain had uh, just been taken over or just been taken back or something. I don't know. Something was going on in Bahrain. And my dad had gotten hired to go over there and help them set up their civil service system. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and I had, uh, you know, wasn't really crazy about the going back there anyway. And, you know, that was, but I was going to go. But I mean, if my parents weren't going to be there, I didn't see any point going back. So at that point, I started looking and Customs was hiring and Kansas Highway Patrol was hiring. So I applied for both. And it was kind of the same thing like the Maryland State Police. I got the job with the patrol. Uh, I've been through, went through the academy, got off probation, was at the fair the following year. And I'm getting a call from customs going, hey, come to work. <laughs> and of course, I'm like, I just went through an academy. I'm not going through another one to heck with you. And I, I stayed where I was. Yeah. It's a little late to the show there, weren't they, Skippy? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard you talk before. I think it's pretty, sounds like it's pretty common with the feds to oh, take that uh, long. But. Steve, what was Two it, three years. years? Two years? Two years, yeah. And almost everybody we've interviewed, especially from DEA that worked federal, um, there was a hiring freeze at some point. There's, yeah, I was trying to get on, but there was a hiring freeze, you know, and then they had to wait a couple of years. But hey, the Hutchison State Fair, man, that was, you got that duty right out of, you were at, you got out of the academy and you went to well, the back State Fair? Back then, everybody did. Everybody did. It, it, it changed later, um, of course, and I ended up working the fair a lot, but, um, but back then, every little crappy gate out there, like the horse gate, had a trooper at it. It's like being a Marine. And standing post and guarding a gate. Oh, yeah. And it was all, and well, you didn't even know what you were doing, but, you know, they, they'd stick you out there and they'd have some civilian taking the money and you couldn't touch money. So you just kind of stood there, I guess, and made sure he was honest. Um, they changed that later on. But yeah, when, when I came on the first year, it was guaranteed you were going to the fair. Yeah, see, when I came on, it 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 almost became more of an exclusive assignment. Is that, you know, only if, only the selected few got to go. And the guys that have been there for years, yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But at first, everybody went and got, and you had no choice. You got crappy jobs. It was just awful. Well, that's the way it goes, man. So, but what year did you join the patrol? 78. 78. Oh, man. We were talking about this, too, and this is kind of a a, a sad part, too, but um, I graduated high school in 78, and you and I were talking about this. I remember I graduated high school. Um, packed up my stuff into my 69 Pontiac Le Mans, white top, red body. And I'm going to go down and visit my sister in Coffeyville. Well, to get to Coffeyville, you have to go down US 77 from Chapman, you know, and go down that way. Mm -hmm. And I was cresting the top of a hill and I was going a pretty good clip. I was probably going 75, 80 miles an hour. And a state trooper. In a 55 back yeah, then. Yeah. I was a kid yeah. with the 69 yeah. Pontiac Le Mans, you know. And, uh, uh, but I, a trooper crested the top of a hill and his lights were on. And I thought, oh God, I'm screwed. And then another trooper and then another trooper. And we were talking about that. You, you, you had just been out 
that was not too long after you got out of the academy, right? When Con Conroy O'Brien was shot and killed down at Matfield Green? Uh, no, um, it was actually um, a day after my final interview. Oh, the day after your final interview. Okay. Yeah, so I wasn't actually, hadn't actually started yet. As I remember, I got, my final interview was Lieutenant Colonel Carl Gray. I don't know if you probably ever heard that name, but um, as I remember, one of the things that he told me was, you know, the odds are more likely in this job that you're going to get hurt, you know, in a traffic accident than you are, gonna, you know, being shot. And a couple of days later, maybe even a day later, um, Conroy got shot. And, and that, as I said, that was a sad day because I remember coming down that. And I learned later, that's one of the things I learned later. And of course, every year, you know, we talk about honoring his name and the other guys that are on the wall there. But it's like, uh, it's just a little weird to think about that. And then um, Charlie Smith was the trooper that got into that final gun battle with him, if I remember right. Wasn't that right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he just recently passed away, too, if I remember right, too. He was, uh, I mean, just another one of those guys at legend. And that was May 24th, 1978. We just graduated high school and I'm going down there. And man, so that this was the day after you interviewed. Uh, what was it like? Okay, on May 24th. And so, yeah, I started June 18th. So that, that would be right. So when you, when you went to the academy, this was still fresh in their minds. What would, did, how did they address that? Or what did they talk to you guys about? When, about uh, Conroy? Um, yeah, it was very fresh. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, it, it came up in, on several occasions, but I don't remember any uh, anything specific. I mean, they discussed it with us several times, but, yeah, I don't, I don't have any specific memories of. Do you remember if Calvin Johnson was the captain when you went through the academy? Was he captain of Division II? He was. Two? He was, yes. He came into our class. Well. Go ahead. He was captain of Division Two. That's what I mean. I mean of Salina. Yeah. Not the training center. Not the training center, but uh, right. He came down and visited our class. Uh, captain Johnson did, and that was after Don Harbor over in Riley County had been shot and killed. I started there in '82. Salina. He happened after that, so he came. Basically, he, we were talking about that, talking about a uh, Conroy O'Brien, some other troops that have been killed. But I remember to this day what. Captain Johnson said when we were sitting in class, we're all trainees, you know, in that trainee uniform, the light blue shirt and the blue, you know, pants and uh, just the belt. And he said, look, he goes, you shoot a cop, you're bought and paid for. And uh, I just that's that that phrase stuck with me ever since that day, because you think about it, the, a lot of the guys like Conroy and, and uh, uh, Bud Pribbenow and folks like that all out there by themselves, you know, alone, no backup. I mean, your closest backup sometimes you know, is 15, 20 minutes away if you're lucky. Oh, yeah, 15, 20 minutes is close on the turnpike. <laughs> Not a yeah. job for the faint of heart, is it? No. Uh, when I when I first started, too, uh, Division 6, which now is Troop, I think, F or whatever it is, G. But, yeah, I mean, you'd be the only guy out three, four, five counties maybe. They'd call you, and you'd be going through two counties, you know, to get to a call to help somebody. But, yeah, I mean, it's a different thing. You know, it's, it's I kind of liked it because you were out there on your own. But back to you here, Mark. Um, so, you get on the patrol. How long at that time? Do you remember how long the academy was for the state patrol? Yeah, it was thirteen weeks. We did uh, seven, and then two months in the field, and then came back for six. Yeah, we did. So it was pretty short. We did fourteen weeks initially, but it was seven in the field, or seven in the right. academy, four in the field, just a month, and then 
uh, back then. So I had to basically, we had to find a place to live, move, you know, and get ready to come back after the academy was over or after the training period was over, then come back to the academy. Cause that's where you found out, at least for us, that's where we found out we were going, wherever we did our training program with was where we were going to be stationed. Was that the same way with you? Yes. And actually they changed it on me. They originally told me I was going to Goodland. So I'd been out looking at a place, you know, looking for places in Goodland and came back and they changed it because somebody else had transferred. Wouldn't have been a guy named Kevin Winston, was it? No, Kevin was a classmate. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah, Kevin Kevin was my class president. So uh, where did you end up going other than good? By the way, for you folks who are wondering, if you pull up a map of Kansas, Kansas City is on the far right end on I-70. Goodland is not the end of the uh, line there, but you're pretty you're getting pretty close. It's Sherman County, if I remember right. Yes. Yeah, you're getting... You're, well, yeah, Goodland was, yeah. Yeah, Goodland yeah. was, yeah, you're way out there. So instead of Goodland, what fabulous, fantastic place did you get assigned to? Well, see, yeah, that was the interesting, you know, with my background, Atlanta, Miami, D.C., Bangkok, all these places, and they send my butt to Oakley, Kansas, 2,000, 2,000 people. I'm like 70 miles from the Colorado border. Now, hold on a second. Oakley, Kansas does have its claim to fame, Mark. We were talking about this. What is the yes, what is the biggest do. what is the big tourist attraction in Oakley, Kansas? Yeah, you, yeah, driving along I-70, you see that the signs every 50 feet that say see the world's largest prairie dog and the five-legged cow and all that kind of crap. So it's a concrete prairie dog if I remember it's right. A, it's about 15 or 20 a, feet tall. Yeah, and it's like a 6,000-pound statue of a prairie dog, the world's largest prairie dog. Why? That's the question. <laughs> why not? Some people say, why? We in Kansas say, why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, let's see. I want to put that on my schedule. Never. Now, come on now. You can go to Greensburg and see the world's largest hand-dug well. Um, where was it? Smith Center or somebody else had the world's biggest ball of twine. So, I mean, we had some, uh, by the way, Garden City, before they changed the pool, we had the world's largest free concrete outdoor municipal swimming pool. Had to get that all in there. 2.1 million gallons. It was the largest one. But, uh, now the funny thing about Oakley though, is I remember I went up, I got in trouble a couple of times, believe it or not, Mark, this is going to shock you. I may have been in trouble a couple of times on the patrol, but I would get bored and I would go up 83 because 83 would take you all the way up to I-70, up there to Oakley. And so I would go up there through That Scott. was part of my district, yeah. Yeah. I would go up that way just to just to say that I did and write a couple tickets in Gove County or, you know, whatever, get, or get farther up there. Logan County. Logan, Logan County, County I mean, yeah. yeah. It wouldn't go in Gove, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Logan County. Gove was off to the east there. And then, but just, I would come back through Gove County and Dighton, you know, and scare the shit right, out of people. Right, right, right. Write farmers tickets for going 85 miles an hour. They go, what are you doing out here? And I just simply pointed my shoulder. I don't, and I'd go, I don't know. It does say state of Kansas on here. <laughs> we have a state highway. Anyway, back to you now. So you got stationed at Oakley. So what year that, so you must, uh, you got out in, uh, June of, uh, or you went to the Academy. You probably got out there in what, October or November of, uh, that yeah, year. Yeah. Yeah. Of 78. Oakley, Kansas in November of 1978. That had to be just a fun time. And that was a blizzard year. That was a year that was just awful snow wise that, that, and we, it, it was nothing like anywhere I've ever been. I, it, even my uncle, the one I mentioned from Minneapolis, he got caught in that once down there. And it's, it was a nothing like he did ever experience. You know, they get more snow, but, you know, you get four or six inches of snow. Yeah, and you get, you know, 12, 15-foot drifts under the bridges from all the wind. And I remember a picture 
Um, did you guys have it up there? Was it the guy has, guys out of Hayes? But they they also had were issued Suburbans with snowmobiles on the back because I have a picture of one of the guys. I think it was out of Hayes. Might have been Tony Prudhoe or somebody, but they're standing up on the snow. His knees are touching the bottom of the overpass. That's how tall the snow was. Yeah, that, yeah. That, well, that was after I got there, and actually a few years. But yeah, they issued uh, the sergeant up in Colby a Suburban and, and a couple of snowmobiles. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Let me tell you, pal, it was fun. So you're sitting there going, I could be in Miami on the beach. I could be in Poussin, you know, uh, you know, it could be out there at South Beach, you know, version of South Beach, Miami. But I'm in Oakley, Kansas. Did you think the world had come to an end? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and when they'd have you close on the road out there, I mean, they got gates now. Yep. And they just close the gate. Well, we, we had to sit there. So literally there's times and I would, you know, face the wrong way with my radar on stationary so that I could tell that a car was coming. Because you couldn't see him for the snow. Because I couldn't see it. Yeah. I couldn't see, you know, I couldn't even see my hood ornament. And you're sitting out there. I was like, what am I doing out here? This is crazy. You're becoming a target. That's what you're I doing. I was a target. <laughs> yeah, that was the big, I think it was uh, maybe 86 or 87, we had another huge blizzard out in southwest Kansas. And we were out for three days in National Guard half-tracks. We couldn't get out in our patrol vehicles. We were constantly yeah, rescuing yeah. people. Um, you know, and I re the only arrest I made during a snowstorm was this one idiot. And I felt sorry for his family, so I only arrested him. But we told him, stay in the National Guard Armory. Do not go back out. And we went out and we got him again. We said, you go out one more time. I said, I swear to God, I'm going to arrest you. He went out, and I, this time I arrested him. And it's like... You, you put us at risk every time we got to come out and haul your ass out. He got his, he drove his station wagon off into the ditch. And had we not realized from the folks at the armory that he had driven off again, those guys might have froze to death because we had thousands of head of cattle that had frozen, were frozen stiff, dead in the corners of these pens because there was nowhere else to go. Wow. We had, we had to happen with a couple of, um, actually, Air Force Academy cadets out near Goodland. I, I wasn't part of it, but. Were those the ones that d d suffocated, uh, or, I mean, carbon monoxide poisoning? Actually, yeah. They went yeah. around the roadblocks, yep. and then they got stuck underneath the bridge and, and died from carbon monoxide poisoning. And, you know, I remember. obviously yeah. a couple of good kids, <clears throat> sharp kids, and, you know, died trying to get around that. So, you know, you, yeah. guys, you guys didn't tell me about this. I'm looking at a map of, of Oakley, Kansas, and it has the Buffalo Bill Cultural Center, it's got the Annie Oakley Motel and Park. I mean, that's those are names I recognize. I didn't know any of that. They also have a, a museum with shark's teeth. In the middle of Kansas. Hey, used to be covered. You, you will find fossils and stuff out here. Fort Hayes State. It's the it's called the it's called the Fick Fossil Museum. I see that. F I C K. Yep. It's full of shark's teeth. And if you go over to Hayes, Kansas, Fort Hayes, I think it's Sternberg Museum. They've got a lot of fossils and dinosaurs and stuff. So they routinely find um, fossils like you, Murph. Well, we discovered you out in Kansas during a dig one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the real attraction. You got a pizza hut there. All right. We did. We did. It's good stuff. But Actually, um, that's the first fast food I remember in Oakley was, was Pizza Hut. I think that's true a lot of places. Yeah. So you get out there, but before we get into the uh, incident um, with these guys, you, you you had not trained. I mean, did you have the opportunity to test for sergeant and transfer, or did you stay? You stayed in Oakley for quite a while, right? Before you, uh, I was. Well, you, I was there. I was only there nine years, seventy-eight to eighty-seven. So let's 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 kind of start setting the context then for what's going on because. Um, 
Let's let people know though, too, what, how were you equipped? Now you came on before I did, but uh, in 83, the year before I came on, the Kansas Highway Patrol was voted the best dressed law enforcement agency in the United States. We won a whole contest and everything. We looked good, Steve. That, that was probably before Morgan got hired, wasn't it, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> but no, you'd come to the academy. They battle. I remember Battle Uniform Company out of Oklahoma would come up, and they would yes. they would measure you for everything: your hats, your vests, your shirts, your pants, everything. When you got your uniforms, it had a tag on the inside with your name on it, and your uh, d- uh, measurements and everything. So. But on, the, on this day, when we start talking about, uh, you know, 1985 and stuff, how, what kind of equipment, how were you equipped? How were, you know, what kind of things did you have at your disposal in your patrol car? Wow. Um, well, I actually still had a, a revolver. Smith and Wesson um, 686. I had a Smith, yeah. I had a 357. Now, did um, you have the ammo dumps or did you get the speed loaders yet? No, I had dump pouches. Um, we didn't, we had a shotgun. Uh, we did not have rifles. Only sergeants had rifles. I had one because my dad had bought me one. What was your vehicle, if you remember? Well, I'm thinking it had to be an 83. Um, Grand Fury? Plymouth Grand Fury, yeah. You had you had an 84, right? You said that was your yeah. first with it? Okay. That was my first, yep. And I had... You had the big, you had the Aerodyne light bar across the top, that big ass... Mm-hmm. Light bar that yes. would suck off ten miles an hour off your top end speed, <laughs> but but you said yours. I because I, I heard on another podcast I heard you say yours was a three eighteen. Yeah, Plymouth Grand Fury with okay. the fabulous. And I didn't. I never had a. My first car was a seventy eight, and I had the four forty, but I didn't have carpet and I didn't have an FM radio. I only had AM. But I'm thinking then. I must have, I, I, I had an 85, but it had to have been after that. It had to have been in, after February, I'm guessing. So I'm guessing I had an 83. And I don't, I, it, but I know I never had a 318. Well, those, those things sucked. We it got had to have been a dog. Yeah. Oh, it was. Do you remember Ken Massey over in Hayes? The name's familiar, yeah. Radio 449. I, I, that's the first ride I ever did with the state trooper, but he had the 78 Chevy Caprices. Remember the two-door? 78 Chevy Caprices, those big-ass doors. That was 79. That were, or 79, yeah. Yeah, because I had a 78. 78 was Plymouth. Or was okay. a Dodge. Yeah. Why yeah. did they get two-door cruisers? That was stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of tough to get a prisoner in and out. Yeah, exactly. Well, we didn't we didn't haul prisoners in the back. They were always in the front. We didn't have cages. <clears throat> and, and we were by ourselves. Yeah, learned a couple lessons about that too. I don't know about you, Mark, but I realized that uh, anytime the supply closet door was open, it was a good time to grab a bunch of trash bags because I arrested a drunk one night. He couldn't control his bladder. Um, I went to go search the seat like you do when you get the prisoner out, and it's like, what the hell is this? And I looked at his pants and I went, oh my God. He peed his pants all over my cloth seats. Yeah, so (laughs) from then on, it's everybody got plastic when they sat down. Ah, Yeah. Bad stuff. Nasty. Anyway, back to you, though. So you're uh, so in. Yeah, that's right. No handheld radios. All your traffic stops, right? Were the outside speaker, right? Exactly. Yes. What fun. And you're you're dispatch. (laughs) Now, the division you were in was unique, too, because every other place, the division headquarters and the dispatch uh, before they went to centralized dispatch, they were all in the same location except for Hayes. Hayes was the division headquarters, but they put the radio center in Norton, Kansas, of all places. I think it's because 
wasn't it Sebelius or somebody, some state senator had a lot of pull and he got that put up there? Uh, well, I, I'd never had thought about that. You're probably right. I mean, the the problem was is that um, Norton was the KDOT headquarters. So that's that's where all of our radio stuff was. And of course, KDOT really controlled us back then, money-wise. Oh, they yeah, they owned the radio system, basically. You know, They owned we our were buildings. Just... They owned everything except our cars and us. Although they, I, I don't know about you, but I think I, I had a couple of radio technicians that their version of working on stuff was you bring your vehicle and you say something's wrong with my radio. They look on their wall and find the right size mallet and then just tap your radio with the mallet. And they go, okay, all fixed now and send you right back out. <laughs> Those old Motorola radios. So let's, let's talk about, uh, believe it's going to be February 13th, 1985. So um, this is the day that a lot of the shoot up, there's a lot of stuff that happens before that we'll get into it with folks in a little bit, but, uh, February 13th, 1985, you're on duty, you're working. Um, so just start walking us through, you know, what your day was like, how you started before you started hearing any radio traffic about anything that was going on. Well, actually you kind of described it a little when you said, you know, talking about driving up North on 83. Um, my district was, uh, very large. I had 240 miles of state and federal highway, but it was all in one direction. So, I mean, everything was, there was no going around in a circle and coming back. It was go out and come back, go out and come back. So we had, um, and you'd almost have to look at a map, like Murph said, but, you know, we had I-70 from Oakley to Greenfield, and then I had 83 south to the Scott County line, and then had US-40 highway, straight west. So everything was going in different directions. So 40 highway went all the way, we went all the way out to Sharon Springs. And that particular stretch of road, 83, we worked a lot. We had a lot of fatals down there because it was a two lane road with no shoulder and a lot of truck traffic. I'm sure you experienced. And then of course I-70 was, you know, where most of our traffic was. And then 40 was dead, you know, and you, you drive 40 and you get out there and it might be five miles before you even saw a car. And uh, it just kind of got neglected. And so that particular day I decided, heck, I haven't been west in a while on 40. I'll go out in the middle of nowhere. And so I was on my way to Sharon Springs when all that started happening. What was, so what time, were you working a day shift or afternoon shift? Uh, it was a day shift. Yeah. So what did you start hearing? Um, I mean, you're on the radio and, and also describe to people do it's not like it is to today where a lot of the, uh, you know, things have improved significantly for the patrol, you know, for a lot of these other agencies where we've got the ability now to hear other radios and more radios. But back then, I think the only thing we had in our car were basically you had two channels, you transmit on one channel, you received on another. And then if you wanted to hear anything else, I had to put like a scanner in my car. What, what did you do? Yeah, well, but we also, yeah, we had that, but, um, Pretty much th in that area, everything we we also had thirty nine five eight, yep, Low which band was radio. which was what all the PDs were on, and so um, yeah, we had we had that the ability to hear most of the PDs. Some of the PDs like Colby had gone to their own, and you had to have a, a scanner for that. Yeah, because um, for you radio files out there, whatever, because low band radio is like you said thirty nine five eight. I don't know why I remember this, but. Um, we would transmit on 4494 and receive on 4518 because we used to, you would transmit on one frequency to dispatch and then they would transmit back to you on another. 
And then you would, if you wanted to do car to car, you'd have to turn your knob and then you could talk car to car, you know, on the same frequency. But it was, it was not a, it was not a fun thing to do. Yeah, well, it was weird because if you were talking, I could hear, you know, if you were talking to Norton, which you wouldn't be, but if you were, I could hear Norton talking to you, but I couldn't hear you talking to Norton. I could only hear their, their response to you. And that's why whenever you would do a traffic stop, we would call it 1044. You might go, like I might go 150 Garden City, 1044. They say, go ahead. And then you'd say it. Then they would repeat it back to you. So the other troops, the other people could hear Garden City, 150, 1044 on US 50 mile post 83 with a black Subaru tag, et cetera, et cetera. That way, that's the only other way. That's at that time, that's all we could hear. So that made collaboration and coordination, you know, very difficult, especially when you got into a critical incident like this. Well, yeah. And the other problem, but the problem with it was, is you could be talking and I don't know you're talking. So I get on and start yakking and we're kind of covering each other. Yeah. Crosstalk. And then the dispatchers would have to say, you know, all the units, you know, they would declare like if it was a bad incident, I think it was 1033, we have 1033 traffic, which meant emergency, right. you know, who, so-and-so go ahead. But so let's talk about that day. So you're out there. What, what's the first indication you have that something is going on? I, I'm I'm way out there. I'm like uh, close to Winona, and like I said, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, and I start hearing about um, the shooting at Grainfield. And that what, who did you hear? Was that from I, Norton? That, yeah, I think I heard that from Norton. I think, um, and of course, Grainfield was was in my district. I mean, that was the very east end of my district, so. I wasn't real happy that I had chosen that day to be out in the middle of nowhere and then something happens on I-70. So uh, you guys go ahead, mentioned Steve. the shooting. Uh, bring me up to speed here. Who got shot? I know there's multiple deaths in this event, but who got shot in this particular incident? Okay, this is this is the uh, the Stuckies and uh, there was a Stuckies there and it was right next it's right off the interstate. It's right next to a big high school that's kind of a regional high school. And the, the manager of that, who apparently he was in there by himself, his name was Larry McFarlane, and uh, they came in and robbed him and, and shot him. Well, that's not the first killing they've done. So when we get into the story, too, you're going to realize they shot and killed somebody in Florida, shot and killed somebody in Arkansas, I believe, shot and killed somebody in Oklahoma. Yeah, they shot Larry McFarlane 10 times. For how much was it they got? 170. Wow. But those folks that were used to traveling on interstates, and, you know, I'd done it before, too. You hit, especially I-70, you would have Stuckies. It was a mm -hmm. the kind of a version of a rest area. You know, it would be like the truck, not a truck stop, but it'd be an area where people could come in. But it'd be a place you're traveling, you pull over there, you get gas, you get food, you might get something to eat. So there was, there was always something, you know, coming off the interstate. And uh, part of the story, too, is they were actually in Salina. Um, and when I was a cop in Salina, we used to work, it was called 135 I-70, two major interstates border right there. We always got a ton of stolen cars off the interstate. They'd be parked in the truck stop. You know, you'd get people coming in. Um, and so you just think about it, you go, there's a lot of shit that goes through these interstates. And then, but these places were continuously getting robbed too. I don't know how many times, do you remember if that Stucky had been robbed before, Mark? Not that I remember. They're probably one of the fortunate ones, but I know over <laughs> past Salina and towards Kansas City and Topeka, some of those places were getting robbed, you know, on a regular basis out there. So you hear this traffic, and like you say, you're at the you're at the ass end of uh, you know US forty out there. So what do you start doing at that point? I headed back towards Oakley. Um, well, actually, towards K twenty five, which is the, the you know the state highway that runs north and south out of Colby. 
and started heading back that way. And then once I got to the junction of K-25, uh, turned north towards Colby. And how long did that take you at that point to get from where you were to that point uh, coming up into Colby? Oh, I don't know. Um, probably, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. But you were going a pretty good clip, though, too, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was going pretty pretty quick. Which is good because there's nobody out there, so you, you you can hit those triple digits and get out there. So you're starting to you're starting to get around Colby. W- what's the next radio traffic you remember hearing? Yeah, then we start hearing. Well, uh, you know, there was at some point up there where, um, well, that high school there at Grainfield, uh, one of the students, it, a student found the body apparently, and one of the students had seen a red and blue car with Michigan tags. So. Uh, one of the troopers, one of the Colby troopers spotted a, a, uh, a red and blue car or something. I don't know. It looked suspicious. And he called to, uh, one of the Thomas County deputies, a guy by the name of Ben Albright, who I was a, a really good friend with. He had been, uh, he had been on the police department down in Oakley prior to getting on the sheriff's office. And, uh, anyway, he called to him. And said, hey, you might want to look at that. I, I got to stop and get gas. And so I'm hearing all that. And then it isn't long, you know, much later. And uh, and again, I, I don't know exactly where I was. Of course, your brain's kind of foggy and all that. But um, then I started hearing that Ben had stopped the car, the deputy, um, and that they had shot him twice. Now, did you hear Ben's radio traffic or was that just relayed to you? I think I heard Ben. Because I met Ben at a KACP award banquet thing, um, you know, yeah, a few yeah. years after that. But he had, I think he had grown, he had like red hair, you know, had grown out a beard. And uh-huh. if I remember right, yeah. And he was, uh, he was, he was on oxygen. I mean, they, they. Oh yeah. He was on oxygen forever. Yeah. Yeah. And he was but, a big guy to start with. So, but you heard the radio traffic. Uh, I think he said he was on US 24, right? The off ramp near, um. No. It was right off of I-70. I'm not 24, I mean, but they were uh, off of I-70. Right at the Levant exit on okay. I-70. So what what happened next as you were listening in? I mean, obviously now you've got an officer. Now Ben's saying he's, he. I think he was he the undersheriff at that time or was he just a deputy? No, he was a deputy. Deputy, yeah. So he's been shot now. That kind of ratchets everything up. So I think a lot more people start getting involved now, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody and their brother is is running around and there was a whole bunch of radio traffic and, and, you know, just a lot of things going on, you know, people discussing here, you go here, I'll go there, you know, that type of thing. But that kind of factored into what you did. Cause you were telling me, um, really Norton, which we used to call garden city state or Norton state, the state dispatch, they really had no idea where you were. They never did. Um, I, you know, there was so much radio traffic going on and I was, you know, I was nowhere. You know, I was coming up behind from the from the south. I wasn't directly involved. I was just heading in that direction. And, you know, kind of everybody assumed, you know, after they shot Ben and then what happened right after, but, you know, that they were probably heading west towards Colorado. Well, they had, in fact, backtracked. Well, we've kind of skipped Levant, but... No, after let's, Levant. Let's, go, let's go back to Levant for a second, because it was at about 2 p.m. that they pulled off into Stucky, shot Lurie McFarland. Then after that, I think that's when they realized, right, that people got a description of their car, so they needed to switch vehicles. Absolutely. So, yeah, they pulled in, uh, you know, tip, Levant's a little town, like I think 68 people, something like that. <clears throat> and they, uh, 
they pull into the grain elevator. Um, and there's several people in there and several of them later, you know, were able to kind of give pretty good descriptions of who was what and who did what. But, um, a, a guy by the name of Morris Christie was the manager there. And, uh, he was apparently trying to, to call the police and they shot him. Uh, he ended up surviving. Um, and there were two other people there. A guy by the name of Rick Schroeder and Glenn Moore. Rick was 29 and Glenn was 55. And they grabbed, I think it was their truck. I'm not sure. It was, it was a it green was, Ford. Yeah, it was Moore's truck, yeah. It was Morris's truck? Yeah, Glenn Moore's truck. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it was Glenn's truck. And uh, anyway, he made Glenn and Rick, they made Glenn and Rick get in the back. And they took them as hostages. And... Kind of like with me, I have no idea why they took them as hostages. They went a couple miles north of town, made them get out, lay down in the middle of the road, and then and just executed them in the middle of the road. Shot them execution style in the back of the head. Jeez, what a nice guy. I read uh, and doing a little research here that uh, Remetta says he did that to show the, the cops that he wasn't playing around. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was his whole thing too. No witnesses, you know, um, that's, that's going to factor in later when we talk about James Hunter, who was the hitchhiker they picked up because what we should talk about in the car is that Danny Rometta and Lisa Dunn both came out of Michigan and Hunter was, a, or I mean, uh, Walters was a friend of them. Mark Walter was a friend of theirs, but they pick up this hitchhiker, James Hunter down by Wichita, I believe it was, yes. and he wants to head back to Missouri. So there's four of them in the car now when this stuff starts going on. And we'll talk a little bit about the, some of the people that were wounded and stuff. But now, by now, what you've got is you've got uh, Larry McFarland at the Stuckey's that's been shot and killed. They ambushed. Basically, Ben Albright shot him. Now they know they got to ditch the car, so they're over in Levant. They take uh, the truck and the two guys, um, Greg Moore and uh, Rick Schroeder. And now these bodies are found in the road. Do you hear about those bodies, Mark? I mean, how do you find out about the shooting in Levant? Is that another just radio traffic from uh, Norton that comes over? Yeah, and Colby. Yeah, I was hearing all kinds of stuff. Was there any good description of the vehicle at that point that they had uh, gotten into? Uh, just that it was a two-tone green club cab, crew cab pickup. And so when this is going on, where are you at? Um, that whole time, I'm just I'm just hauling butt north on 25, and I get to Colby, and 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 again, I don't remember exactly where I was when each, you know, at each sequence. But um, when I got to Colby, you know, I looked down and I'm almost out of gas, and you know, I had to make a decision: either stop and get gas, or just keep going. And I just said to hell with it and kept going. And Mark, stop here for a second. A lot of people are going to think that that's a kind of a bullshit thing. Well, what'd you stop to get gas for? It's like the trooper you were talking about in Colby. When you get out there and you're, you, if you pass a gas station, you might not run into another one for 15, 20, maybe 30 miles. So when you, your car is your lifeline. That's where, that's what gets you there. That's what gets you everywhere. You run out of gas. You, I hate to use the bad turn of a phrase, but you're dead in the water. There's nothing you can do. Nobody's going to be running out there with all of this shit going down to bring you a gallon of gas to get you into a gas station. Right. You're out of the fight. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, a, I don't know. It was a, just a split second decision, you know, and it had I stopped for gas, I wouldn't have been involved in it, I'm sure. 
So I've just, one of those things that happened. Hey players, this is the end of part one and Trooper Mark Comboy's confrontation with a gang of spree killers. Make sure you join us for part two where we get into the rest of the story of what happened with everybody in the case. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out GameofCrimesPodcast.com, our website. We've got pictures of Mark there as well as our merch, our book list, a lot of other good stuff you'll find only at GameofCrimesPodcast.com. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of content listed there. We just put out our Q&A. We've also got You Can't Make This Shit Up. We've got 911, What's Your Emergency, along with Case of the Month. We do live stream reviews of top movies. We get your feedback on that. So come join us. In the meantime, stay tuned for part two of Trooper Mark Comboy and his confrontation with a gang of spree killers. And thank you, players, once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, The Game of Crimes. Thank you.